If you have elementary age kids or below, we'd love for them to join us out this side door, fifth, sixth, seventh-ish area, kiddos out the back, and we've got great opportunities for all those kids in terms of age-specific gospel teaching, and we'd love for them to be a part of what we have happening. Uh, we've got a lot of kiddos around here, pretty, pretty exciting um, stuff. So for those of you that are here uh, for the very first time, again, I want to welcome you. Welcome to the Vine Community Church. Uh, welcome if this is your very first Sunday. Uh, hopefully you have found someone that is nice to you and would want to come back. Uh, our goal, all, all, honestly, is not just that you want to come back, but that somewhere along this way today you'd meet Jesus, that whether it be in worship or in the Word, and that you would have a life-changing encounter with Him. Uh, we are excited about what God is doing in our young community, and it's an incredibly exciting time. We believe to be part of this church, and so we're, we're glad that you're here this morning. You're actually stepping into a pretty lengthy series that we've engaged ourselves in as we walk through the Gospel of John. We're 31 weeks in. <clears throat> we have made it all the way into chapter 8, and we're going verse by verse, line by line, word by word, trying to discover and understand the deity of Christ as revealed to the gospel of John, right? And so John's gospel, as I say each week, is holistically different than any of the others. The other gospels were really focused on telling the historical side of the life of Christ, and John is focused purely on having his readers know that Jesus was God. His entire gospel is written towards the divinity of Christ. The majority of his gospel letter, which we're about to get into, is the last week in the life of Jesus that leads to his crucifixion and resurrection. The rest is sort of set up for that moment that's going to change the entire course of human history. And so we've been exploring for 31 weeks now John's claims, essentially, and Jesus' testimony, essentially, that he is, in fact, God, that he is not some wandering rabbi just sort of traveling around the Judean wilderness, but that he is God himself, and that should change everything about us and how we understand the world. So my goal as a preacher, really honestly, is just really simple. It's just that you would see Jesus, and that's what John's goal was in this gospel. And so we've explored this text, this gospel letter through that lens, right, about understanding Jesus as eternal life, both life here abundant on earth and the promise of eternal life to come. And John's gospel has taken a little bit of a turn over the past few weeks. We've kind of seen this happen. Jesus went from being this attractive kind of out in the wilderness guy who's teaching and laying hands on people and doing miracles and everyone's kind of drawn to him to really coming into the brunt of worldly anger. The Pharisees and Jewish leaders have had about enough of the following that Jesus is stirring. He is a threat to their way of life, and they have had about plenty. And now they are trying to seize and ultimately kill him. And that worldly anger is ultimately going to take Jesus to the cross. And the tide of John's gospel has now swelled to a place where it is all essentially contention. Jesus is in the throes of worldly anger with the Pharisees and Jewish leaders, and that gospel is shifting us towards the cross. So much so that it came to another head last week when we looked at a very famous encounter that Jesus has with a woman that's caught in adultery. If you were here last week, you remember that encounter. You may even know the story if you weren't here last week. It's a pretty famous story. Jesus had just had this really sort of week-long kind of dialogue, exchange, argument, whatever you will, with Pharisees while at the Feast of Tabernacles, 
he was there and he was teaching and they were going back and forth and they tried to seize him and arrest him and they couldn't. Jesus and the, and the rest of the goers kind of leave the city for a day or two and Jesus comes back and he's teaching in Jerusalem again, even though the Pharisees want him dead. And as he's teaching early one morning, the Pharisees bring this woman to him that had been caught in the act of adultery, right? And we explored all the details of this last week. So if you weren't here, you can go take a, take a listen to that. But essentially, they bring him this woman who they had caught in the act of adultery. And they looked at Jesus and they said, Jesus, okay, so here's the deal. We've caught this woman in the act of adultery and our law says that we've got to kill her, stone her. What do you want us to do with her? And they were trying to, of course, trap Jesus. And we explored this last week because they wanted Jesus to either say, you know, no, don't do that. And then break the law, the, the Jewish law, which was a bit of a perversion of what actually it was. It actually said that they should take him and her out if she was a betrothed virgin, et cetera, and then stone them both. But they kind of ignore all that. And they're just trying to catch Jesus, right? And he says, no, disobey the law. Or if Jesus says, yes, go ahead and kill her, then he'll be in violation of Roman law. The Israelites were under uh, Roman rule at the time, and they had no power to carry out death sentences. And so they were trying to get Jesus caught in this trap. And you remember the story, right? Jesus bends down and he begins to write in the dirt with his finger. We have no idea what he's writing about, but he sits there in this sort of uncomfortable way Why this woman who's fully exposed, caught in the most sort of public and horrific picture of whatever act struggle sin fear exposure she is she's standing there in front in the temple courts in front of a group of jewish religious men who are accusing her of adultery and she knows she did it and she's exposed and jesus is riding in the dirt and her entire life hangs in the balance of whatever jesus says right we explored this sort of what it would be like to be that vulnerable right to have your entire life sin fears exposed for the world to just look at. And we looked at this story from her perspective, but Jesus bends down in the dirt there, right? And the Pharisees continue to push Jesus and he stands up and he looks at all of them and he says, okay, here's the deal. If any of you has no sin, then go ahead, kill her, throw a rock at her. Text tells us that one by one, starting with the oldest, they just left, right? Because they recognized the older and wiser ones first that they couldn't do it. Even though they had portrayed to the world that they were sinless, that this is what their entire life was built on, the Pharisees' ability to morally keep the law and be a little bit above everybody else. They still walked away, and we're left with Jesus and this woman, and he says, where are your accusers? And she says, there's none of them that are here. And Jesus says, go and leave your life of sin. And we talked about this story from this perspective, how uncomfortable it makes me feel. Because the truth is, is that I am equal parts sinful woman and equal parts deeply sinful Pharisee that brought her there. We explored the nature of that, that all of us have this stuff in our life, sin, garbage, that if exposed, we'd be mortified. Thoughts, things, behavior, stuff we did years ago, last night, things that we've thought that we wish no one would ever know that have stood in front of everybody and exposed to the world how vulnerable and fearful, right, that would be. And we've all engaged in things that we wish we hadn't. We've thought things. We have sin in our lives that we wish we could keep hidden forever. We feel that right? But we're also all equal parts Pharisee. When we're really great at staying just high enough above the moral fray, standing on whatever religious soapbox we have that month, and shouting down the world with our finger. Christians have made an art of this, of being just judgmental enough to feel a little bit righteous because we're not murderers, crack smokers, or whatever. Whatever our moral box is that month. Yet we're deeply sinful like the Pharisees. In fact, they brought this woman there as this sinful act of self-righteousness. 
And we do that because we cover up the garbage in our own life by shouting down the other people around us. We do it in our marriages. We do it in our homes. We do it in our workplaces. We do it on social media. It's disgusting, but it's who we are because we're deeply sinful. We're equal parts sinful woman and equal parts cover-up artists. Right? We talked about all this last week. And you know what Jesus does in that scenario is he levels the playing field. He just says, if you haven't sinned, go ahead, kill her. And so all of a sudden, the Pharisees and the sinful woman are essentially the same. And we talked about being exposed to the grace of Christ. That it's the most painful but most beautiful place we could ever be. Covered with only what he could give us. Well, even in the light of that incredible sort of moment where Jesus has this moment with the Pharisees and they, they, they can't seize him, they can't trap him, right? They can't arrest him. They're hearing his words. They still are so furious that they're now going to try another tactic to try and invalidate his testimony. And so even in the midst of that scenario, they're still going to not give up because he is such a threat to their way of life that they want to do anything they can to rid themselves of Christ. And so this morning, we're going to divide this text up into two parts this week and next week, but it's the same kind of lengthy encounter. They're going to try and outsmart Jesus, which we can essentially know how that's going to wind up. But they're going to try and outsmart him by, by using some of his own words against him to try and invalidate and repudiate what he has said about himself so that the people will be like, this guy doesn't know what he's talking about. Because they are so desperate to find a way to prove that Jesus, right, is worthy of death. And so we're going to pick up in the middle of that. If you've got your Bible, I want you to open up to uh, John chapter 8. Uh, we're going to be in 12 through 20-something-ish this morning. Uh, we'll go 12 through 20, how about that, uh, this morning. And then we're going to pick up the second part of this next, next week as well. So before we do that, let's take a moment. Let's just pray. Let's ask God to reveal truth to our hearts. Let's ask him to teach us. Let's ask him to reveal who he is. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity just to gather here this morning and open your word. Lord, I do not take this lightly. An encounter with your word is an encounter with you. Your word is true. You tell us it is living and active. You tell us that it is sharper than a double-edged sword. You tell us that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of our heart. God, you tell us that an encounter with your word is an encounter with you. And so, Lord, we don't take this lightly. We open it and we ask you to reveal yourself to us. God, we can't discover you. We're not going to come to some great revelation of on our own. You are the revealer of truth. You are the revealer of yourself. So, Lord, we ask through your Holy Spirit to teach our hearts, to convict us where we need to be convicted, to empower us where we need to be empowered, to lead us as we need to be led. Take a moment in your own heart and just ask the Lord to teach your heart this morning. Just however you want to say that or however you need to say it, just ask the God of the universe to teach your heart. Take a moment and pray for somebody else. We do this every week. We want to be in the habit of praying for other people. Pray that God would move in them. That whatever they have going on, God would, would move through that and reveal himself. Pray that he would teach their heart. Maybe you don't know their name. Maybe you do. Just pray for them. Lord, we turn our morning over to you. We ask that you would teach our hearts. God, we ask that you would be glorified. We ask that you would be exalted. 
In the risen name of Jesus, our Savior and our Redeemer. Amen. So we've had this scenario that we explored, we just kind of walked through, and Jesus is going to find himself again back in the temple where he continues to go. And so we're going to pick up in verse 12 and go down through verse 20. When Jesus spoke again to the people, he said, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. The Pharisees challenged him. Here you are appearing as your own witness. Your testimony is not valid. Jesus answered, even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and I know where I'm going. But you have no idea where I came from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are right because I am not alone. I stand with the Father who sent me. In your own law, it is written that the testimony of two men is valid. I am one who testifies for myself. My other witness is the Father who sent me. Then they ask, where is your Father? You do not know me or my Father, Jesus replied. If you knew me, you would know my Father also. He spoke these words while teaching in the temple area near the place where the offering was put. Yet no one seized him because his time had not yet come. So you got to understand how infuriating this is to the Pharisees and Jewish leaders. So they have tried everything they can to arrest and seize Jesus. In fact, you remember a few weeks ago, they tried to seize him on their own. But John tells us in chapter 7 that they could not even lay a hand on him. So they went to grab him, but they could not even touch him. And so then they got even more furious, and they sent the temple guards who were armed with swords to go and seize Jesus. And they went to seize him, and they couldn't lay a hand on him either. In fact, when they came back and reported to the leaders, they said, We've never heard anybody teach like this with these words. In other words, they were stopped and moved by his authority, right? They can't seize him. They tried to legally trap him in some kind of bind last week. We saw with this encounter with the sinful woman, you know, pin him up against Roman law and against Jewish law, and they still couldn't do it. And yet Jesus is back here again in the temple. And John at, 20, at verse 20 tells us that he was back in the temple teaching in the area where They take the offering, which I'll get to more in a moment. But he's back in the temple teaching again, and they literally can do nothing about it. And it's infuriating because the religious leaders had this incredible power, not only over the people, but especially over anything that was around Jewish life and worship, the temple. Yet they couldn't keep Jesus out. They couldn't arrest him. They couldn't touch him. Why? Well, John tells us like 10 times because his time had not yet come. His time had not yet come. And this is really important. We've kind of hit on this a few times, but here's the reason for that, and we're going to really get into it later theologically, but humanity is not going to conquer and overthrow and arrest and beat and kill God. From a theological standpoint, God is going to voluntarily lay his life down for humanity. When the time is perfectly right in the course of redemptive history, Jesus will hand himself over to humanity, right? And humanity will kill him. God will raise him from the dead, victory over sin and death. But humanity is powerless. They do not seize, arrest, and kill God. So John is telling us that they can't touch him because humanity has no power over God, right? So it's infuriating because they can't touch him, and literally they have to sit there and watch him teach. 
Well, Jesus is standing there in this area where they take the offering outside the, or actually it's a little bit more inside the temple than where he usually is. And he says this statement, which is a really incredible, powerful statement, which we'll get to in a minute. Out of the blue, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And then the Pharisees that were standing there challenged him. And they said, here you are, right, once again, standing here, appearing as your own witness. But your testimony is invalid. They're actually using something Jesus said back in chapter 5, verse 31, against him. Back in 531, Jesus says, listen, if I testify just about me, it's not valid, so I've got another. And he was referring to John the Baptist. He was talking about how John's role as the witness was come to bear truth and testimony to who Jesus was. I remember we've talked a lot about John the Baptist in, in our first few weeks of studying this and on, but he was saying, look, I've got another voice. And so they're trying to trap Jesus essentially by outsmarting him, by saying, even you told us, that your testimony alone is not valid. So here you stand here, talking and doing whatever it is that you're doing, right? Because they're furious. And your testimony, your witness is not valid because you're the only voice. And they're probably super smug about it, right? Because they remember Jesus said that and they know what their law says. The law essentially said that you can't take the word of one person. If somebody accuses you of a crime, you have to have a witness, Somebody's got to corroborate that story. If not, there's no real way to prove that it's valid. So it made sense. And Jesus says to them, essentially, or they say to Jesus, like your testimony about yourself, saying that you are God or you are from the Father, all these things, they're not valid. Because all you're doing is standing over here talking about you, right? Well, Jesus sort of stops what he was doing, which was talking about this incredible statement about I'm the light of the world and he Walks in me, never walks in darkness, but has a light. He doesn't even revisit that. He just sort of turns his attention and walks down this path with the Pharisees. Even if I testify on my own behalf, my testimony is valid, for I know where I came from and I know where I'm going, right? But you have no idea where I came from or where I'm going. You judge by human standards. I pass judgment on no one. But if I do judge, my decisions are right because I am not alone. I stand with the Father, right? In your law, it's written the testimony of two men is valid, and I come as one, and my other witness is the Father. So Jesus says this. He says, listen, even if I were to testify on my behalf, it's valid because it's me. I came from heaven. I'm returning to heaven. I have firsthand knowledge of the Father because he sent me. So your human arguments are ridiculous. Because even if I were to testify on my own, my testimony is valid because of where I've come from and where I'm going, and you know neither of those. He's looking at them saying, not only do you not know where I'm from, but you don't know the Father who sent me. And this becomes the point of contention between Jesus and the Pharisees from now until the day that they actually arrest him, put him on trial. Jesus is simply saying, you don't know the Father because I am from him. And if you knew me, you would know him. And if you knew him, you would know me but you don't know. And Jesus has been saying this for weeks, right? You remember, if you've been here for a few weeks, you've heard Jesus say this to them over and over again because they didn't believe that the Messiah was gonna come out of the area of Galilee. And Jesus gets in this argument two weeks ago, we looked at this, where he says, I'm not really from Galilee, I'm actually from the Father, who you don't know. You don't know anything about me. And so Jesus says to him, even if I did testify, it's valid because I'm from heaven and I'm going back there. You don't know the Father because if you did, you would know me. But he says, but just so we can get through this little thing, 
I'll be the first witness. And you know who else I'm going to bring as the second witness? The Father. So you want two witnesses? Me and God. All right, so he's going, these are the two witnesses, which are better than any witnesses you've ever had for any legal battle you've ever been in. One, the one that came from heaven who has been there. And two, the other one that sent him. The God that you claim to know but have no idea who he is, right? It's sort of like that God, drop the God card in there. Well, they're confused, man. They, they really just don't get it. And it's really hard to believe they don't get it because for weeks, Jesus has been saying the exact same thing. But even John tells us in 27 that they did not know that Jesus was talking about God the Father. They were thinking pure kind of human standards. It's why they, Jesus says, look, you judge by human standards, which I do not judge by human standards, right? Jesus is going to judge in a divine way that will come. But he said, if I do judge, I do it because my judgment is right because I'm from God. He says, you're looking at all this with worldly standards. And John tells us that the Pharisees didn't think that Jesus was talking about heavenly father, that was my earthly father. And so how do they reply? Where is your dad? Where is he? Where is your father, which is exactly what they say to him, because they're saying, if your father shows up here, right, and testifies, then that might be something. Now, there's a lot of speculation. A lot of scholars believe that uh, Joseph, Jesus' earthly father, right, not he was born of the Virgin Mary, but J the Joseph, who was Mary's husband, had already died. And a lot of scholars believe that the Pharisees, of course, would know this. And so they were making this sort of attack and play going, oh yeah, your dad's testimony? Well, guess what? He's dead. So where is he? In other words, you have no valid claim to anything. Even your words saying that you have a father who could testify are broken because he's dead. You have nothing. And they're thinking purely on these worldly standards, right? But Jesus, of course, was not talking about his worldly father. It's clear here and clear all through the past chapter that he's talking about the heavenly father. He says in verse 19, you don't know me or my father. If you did know me, you would know him also, right? And he spoke these words while teaching in the temple area next to the place where they take the offerings. Yet no one seized him because it wasn't yet his time. The temple was divided in a lot of different areas, uh, different pockets and things and corridors and rooms. Most of the teaching that Jesus did took place in the outer courts, uh, places where people could gather and be heard. As you stepped inside a little bit, um, to, through those outer courts, there was an area called the Temple Treasury, and the Temple Treasury had 13 receptacles that had, they were sort of fashioned in the shape of a shofar or a ram's horn, where people could come and they could put their offering or their alms or their coins, and each of these 13 boxes would go to a different part uh, of, of things that would go to alleviate pain and suffering in the city. So different areas or things or, you know, whatever, um, for the poor, for the widows or whatever. And you could come in and you would put your coins in there. It's where Jesus saw the widow put her mite, if you remember that story, in that area where people could go, but they would go to do specific offering giving. And Jesus is the only time we really see him ever teaching there, but he's there. And it seems a little bit like a throwaway statement, right? Like Jesus is just there teaching in the place where they give the offering, but it's actually really powerful because they're standing in the middle of the place where people would bring their gifts to the Lord who would hopefully go to alleviate pain and suffering in the community. And yet here's the gift of God that is given to eliminate all pain and suffering for humanity. And humanity is rejecting the gift that God has given them in the very presence, right, 
where giving goes. And John is just pointing to the fact that this is an incredibly complicated picture where God is in love with humanity and has given us the greatest gift, yet humanity is rejecting the gift that has come to save them. And Jesus is in this dialogue with these Pharisees, and they're missing. They just don't get it. Now, there may be one guy that gets it. Anybody remember Nicodemus back in 3, where he comes to Jesus at night, and he says, Jesus, we know you're a great rabbi, for nobody could do these things if the Father wasn't with them. And then two weeks ago, when the, uh, the religious leaders and the Pharisees were furious because they couldn't arrest Jesus, and the temple guards had come back, and, and Nicodemus stands up in front of all of them because he's a Pharisee and a member of the Sanhedrin, and he says, listen, does our law even allow us? Right? To pass judgment on someone before we hear their story, and they sort of shout him down. Nicodemus may be the only one that sort of gets that Jesus is talking about something bigger and greater. But outside of that, none of them get it. And they're going, where is your dad? And Jesus is going, you don't even know him. And this becomes the point of contention. And when they begin to realize that Jesus is talking about the Heavenly Father, and they begin to realize that Jesus is saying he's come from heaven, that's when everything explodes because the leaders would not have it. They couldn't have that blasphemy that Jesus said, I am, in fact, God. And this is what will lead Jesus to the cross. And so they're in this dialogue. We're going to pick it up next week. But there's a couple of things that I really want us to see here um, that I think are just really important that we just need to lay out. One we've been seeing from about the past three chapters. And that's this. You cannot know the Father and reject the Son. This is an incredibly important theological point that John makes. He makes it from the beginning when he talks about Jesus being, in essence, one with the Father, that Jesus always was. Way back in one, we talked about the theological understanding of the preexistence of Jesus, that Jesus was not a created being, that he is, in very essence, God, and that he always was and always will be. In fact, John calls him the Word. The Word was God. The Word was with God, right? That Jesus always was. He was preexistent. And to know the Father is actually to know the Son. And to know the Son is to know the Father. Jesus says it right there in our text in verse 19. He says, you do not know me or my Father, for if you knew me, you would know the Father. He says it again in 42. If God were your Father, you would love me, for I came from him. There are billions, well, millions, if not billions, of people in this world who claim to know the Father and reject the Son. It is impossible to know God the Father and reject the Son because, in essence, their testimony is one. To claim we know God and reject Jesus as his Son is to not know God at all. Right? To claim that we follow Jesus, yet to reject the authority of God the Father is to not know Jesus at all. The truth is, is that you can't claim to love God and reject the Son. It's what the Pharisees were running into. They wanted to claim to know God the Father, but reject his Son. And Jesus says, you know neither. And imagine having given your whole life religiously to something. Study it. Breathe it eat it, live it, portray it, right? And have this guy tell you, you don't even know the person that you claim to follow. And that's why this thing blows up. And blow up necessarily because the Pharisees were angry about Jesus' teaching. They didn't like the stuff on the Sabbath and whatnot. But they didn't like it because Jesus blew up their way of life. 
You cannot know the Father and reject the Son, which means for us as followers of Christ, right? That in essence, accepting Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior is understanding the very heartbeat of the Father. The whole of Scripture, from Genesis 1 all the way through Revelation, is a redemptive picture of God's incredible love for humanity through the redemptive person of Jesus Christ. It all points to Jesus. Every part of it points to redemption that comes through Christ to alleviate sin and death. To have a lovey-dovey picture of a God the Father and reject the death and crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus is to not know God at all. God's essence is wrapped up in the Son, and Jesus says, we, our testimony is together, right? He validates who I am because our story, our testimony is one. So you can't reject the Father, or you can't love the Father, accept the Father, and reject the Son. That's evident through Scripture. It's going to come up all the time. Just a, something to anchor yourself on. The second thing I want you to see really comes out of John 8, 12. It's the verse that Jesus starts with and we never return to. And it is life-changing. If you really understand who Jesus is in the middle of it, it's life-changing. But it's funny because he says it and then we never get back to it because the Pharisees hijack this conversation trying to get Jesus to get caught in the trap where his words are no longer valid. And Jesus goes down that road essentially to do what Jesus does, which is to make stronger claims to his deity and to glorify God. That's why Jesus does what he does. But that verse is incredible and it almost gets overlooked. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. You got to understand this. Jesus is really saying a couple of things here. But the first thing he's saying is that when you follow me, you have me. So he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. What that means is that when we follow Jesus, we're not just tagging along behind him. Like Jesus is out in front and we literally are just kind of walking around doing whatever he does. We're following Jesus. Jesus says that when you follow me, you have me. You have me. You have me as the light of life. And John 1, if you remember back in John 1, he says that Jesus is the light, and in the light there is life. That when we follow Jesus, we're not following a moral teacher that's giving us a, a kind of a compass to see the world. We are following someone who dwells within us and who shines light into the very darkness of this world, and he is in us, and we have him, meaning he changes everything that we do and see. We have him as our light, and that light is life. It means that Jesus illuminates things. He shines light in the areas of our life that may, we may not understand. He shines light in the paths that are broken or that are dark. He illuminates the way that we see the world, the way that we see in our own sin and struggle and need. We have him, and in him is life and light. Now, it may not sound like much, but if you understand that Jesus isn't here to morally lead you somewhere so you feel better about your actions, but you understand that Jesus came so that you might put to death your old way of life and be found in him, then it changes everything. See, most of us want a God that we can follow, that allows us to do the things that we still want to do, but we can follow him, and he adds some morality to our existence so we feel like we leave the world in a better place than when we came. 
That's what we want, but that's bankrupt. What Jesus came to do was to exchange our death for his life so that we might be found in him, not tagging along behind him, sprinkling a little morality onto a broken world, but literally exchanging our death for his life so that we could see and live differently, wholly differently. It says, when you follow me, you have me. Jesus doesn't leave you behind because you're not keeping up. And I've actually heard people mention that before. Like, I was following Christ, but I just I kind of drifted away and I've sort of done this as if Jesus has outpaced them. It's an impossibility. And when you surrender your life to Christ, you have him. He is in you. You literally have God's presence in you. He is not outpacing you. You may wander and drift, but you never leave the presence of God means God has never left you nor forsake you, right? He is always a redeeming God. And in him, we have light and life. He goes on to say that that light and life, right, is for the entire world. I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. I am the light of the world. And there's two things that this really tells us. One, it tells us <clears throat> that Jesus is the light of the world, and he has not yet illuminated the whole world. That will come upon his return, but the entire world is not yet illuminated. That means that there is actually darkness. You're either walking in the light, which is Jesus, or you're walking in the darkness. There is no third alternative. There is light and dark. But it tells us that Jesus came as light for the entire world. There is no other light. The first thing that Jesus sort of lets us know in that verse is there's no third option. There's no third option of morality or religious whatever. It's darkness or it's light. And John 1 tells us that Jesus is the light, the true light. So there is no third option, which a lot of us have spent our time trying to track down. The third option, right? The religious plural, plurality option that says all roads go to the same place. Whatever God or idea or wisdom or circumstance you want to follow, Man, as long as it leads you to someplace good, that's the religious plurality that we want to engage in. But it's bankrupt. Jesus is the light for the world, and there's darkness, right? There's not a third option. But also buried in there is the idea that Jesus is the light for the world. This is, and this is the greatest news for you and for me is that through Christ, God's covenant family is broken wide open. That we surrender our lives to him and we are grafted into God's beautiful covenant picture. As Gentiles, we are welcomed into the covenant family because of Jesus Christ. That this light is for you and for me and for the entire world. That if we surrender our lives to Jesus Christ, that if we surrender ourselves, yes, as painful as it may be to come face to face with the reality of our sin, as I said last week, it is also the most beautiful place you could ever be because God is a redeeming, freeing God of restoration. But that light is for the world. And it's an incredible picture of grace because what Jesus is saying is he's looking at the Pharisees, essentially saying, this is for you too. Like, I am the light and I am for you the entire world. There is no other option. It's darkness 
or light, and I am for you too. And if we get the nature of who Jesus is, that he came to illuminate our darkness, to dwell within us, to change our way of thinking and living and breathing, that he came to be our sacrifice and our living water and the bread of God, the sustainer of life, all of those things. And not just a religiously moral way to something better so that we can leave this place better than we found it. It'll change you. Because I no longer live, but as Paul would say, Christ lives in me. But what's really remarkable here, and the last thing I'll wrap everything up with this, is that that light that Jesus says he is, that true light, it changes the way that you see things, right? Obviously, if you've ever walked in darkness in the middle of the night or whatever, things are dark. Our neighborhood doesn't have any street lights. It's pitch black. You go outside in the street at night, it's dark. So take a flashlight or you take your phone or you do whatever, and all of a sudden you can see things. You see things differently, right? Because it's not dark any longer. Jesus as the true light changes the way that we see things. It changes the way that we see our life, changes the way we see people, but it even changes the way that we see things like hurt and pain and death and suffering. Jesus becomes a lens by which we see all things. And when we understand the nature of who God is and what he came to do through Jesus Christ, then pain and death and hurt and suffering, right, become bearable through the lens of Christ. Because there's a redemptive avenue, a redemptive nature, and a beautiful nature to who God is that allows us to see what the world would call despair and brokenness and hurt through a lens of hope and healing and restoration. That in the middle of our worldly tragic loss, we believe and are anchored to a God that is bigger than what we can understand and imagine, a God that can redeem even our deepest hurt, even the tears that we have shed, even the sort of lost nature of where we think we are. God is a God who can redeem because the true light shines hope and truth in the middle of darkness. A lot of times our biggest struggles is that we forget that Jesus illuminates the way that we see things. And we try and see the world through our own lens. We try and see the world through the lens of how is this ever going to work out? How am I ever going to get to the end of this? How is this relationship ever going to be whatever? How are we ever going to dig ourselves out? Never, never, never. Because we've got our lens focused from our worldly standpoint, and Jesus illuminates everything differently. And he becomes a light by which we see all things. Relationships, forgiveness, death, suffering, when you can see those things through the light of Christ, they have new meaning. It doesn't mean they're less painful, but when illuminated through the life of Christ, there's hope. There's hope that one day, as Revelation says, he will wipe away every tear. There'll be no more pain or suffering. There'll be no more cancer, no more death, no more decay. He illuminates the way that we walk by saying things aren't pointless. Every relationship matters because people matter to God. And that his light is for everyone. And that there's no one beyond or outside of God's redemptive reach. And you, personally, have never done anything that can outpace God. He is a God of redemption, a God of restoration, and a God of healing. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever walks in me will never walk in darkness. Never walk in darkness. That means you are not alone. 
You are not walking in darkness. You're just choosing to close your eyes. Open your eyes, see the world through the lens of Christ's beauty, and you will have the light of life. Let's pray together. God, we thank you that your word is timeless. And there are times in our own lives, God, where it's hard, man. Things feel dark. feels like we can't see. But God, you tell us that you are the light of life and that we will never walk in darkness. God, you tell us that following you is not about tagging along and learning a few things morally, but having you literally in us. You are with us. You are in us and you are through us. I will never be alone as a follower of Christ. I always have you. Lord, we confess that it is hard to see sometimes, that we've allowed the world to cloud our vision, that we've allowed a pain and suffering and death, sadness, despair, and fear to cloud the way that we see. And oftentimes we look down and the path looks unmanageable. But God, the truth in all that is that we're not allowing you, the true light, to be the one that exposes and shines light and leads and moves. And so, Lord, this morning I pray that as we close our time in worship, as followers of Christ, that we would, we would surrender our own way of thinking and looking at the world to you, and we would say, Jesus, be the light into my path. Be the light into my life, to the way that I see. Change my perspective from death and destruction to beauty and hope. Change my perspective from fear to joy. Change my perspective from sadness to hope. Lord, we ask that you would illuminate everything through the light of Christ. As we close our time in worship, God, I pray that you would allow those truths to echo through our hearts, that we might stand as the people of God who have been given the light of life and proclaim that we are no longer under the yoke of death, but you have freed us through life, and that life is light. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and close.